0: Here are your hosts, Chase Palm, And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to
1: be on TV. Welcome to another edition of Henry's Guys, presented by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. I'm Neil McCready. Tonight on the show, I'm joined by Josh Hendrickson, the chair of the Department of Economics at the University of Mississippi. Josh is also the publisher of Economic Forces. It's a weekly, weekly, right, Josh? Yeah. Weekly newsletter available on uh, Substack. You can follow Josh. And learn more on Twitter at Rebel Econ Prof. That's R E B E L E C O N P R O F. We'll get to Josh in uh, just a minute, but uh, first, let me tell you about Comer and Southern. They've got different names, but they offer the same people the same great products, the same great services. It's going to get hot starting next week. Really hot. If your AC is acting like it's not going to be able to handle that load, now's the time to get in touch with Comer. Get in touch with Southern. If you live in Oxford, Batesville, Tupelo, or the surrounding area, call Comer 662-801-1777. If you live in Hernando, Memphis, or the surrounding area, call Southern 662-429-4429. This will be the Friday Oxford Exxon podcast. Don't forget, Friday is National Donut Day. Each person who walks into the Blue Sky location in Clinton or Brookhaven will get a free donut between 6 and 9 a.m. So go get the donuts and uh, enjoy them. Uh, The Oxford Exxon Highway 6 West in Oxford is also a great place for you to uh, stop in on your way in or out of town. You can fill up outside at the pump, and then you can fill up inside as well. Don't forget about their ribs. Dry and wet, they'll take care of you. Make that a part of your summer weekend we're coming to you from the Clark Ford studio Clark Ford in Amory, Mississippi 662-257-1900 is the number call it ask for my buddy Clark uh, Corey Clark tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for he'll send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours it's right to the bottom line there's no hassle there's no haggle you get the quote and the rest is completely up to you you can shop that quote around or you can do what I've done multiple times now and that's hopping to a Clark Ford today Corey wants to be your car guy he wants to be a truck guy he'll prove to you what that means when you make the call, 662-257-1900, uh, normally guests join on the myperfectfranchise.net hotline. Josh is obviously here in the studio, but when guests join on the hotline, it's on the myperfectfranchise.net hotline. If you're a displaced corporate executive, you're uh, wanting to uh, put your career in your own hands, maybe you're an experienced entrepreneur simply looking to diversify your portfolio, Andy Ludeke can help. He owns multiple franchises and businesses. He uses his expertise to help others find their American dream through a very thorough and free consultation process. So call Andy. Put your life and your career in your own hands. It's 100% free, so you've got nothing to lose. Find your perfect franchise at myperfectfranchise.net or contact Andy anytime at Andy@myperfectfranchise.net at or on his cell phone, 404-973-999. Zero, one, dr. Hendrickson how are you sir i'm great thanks for having me i appreciate you being here um all right we'll start with a couple things i'm going to start with a couple sports things first you and i are both cubs fans which means we're sick but um yeah luke jenkins says why are there two kneels we we we, there is there's a lot of similarity here between the two of us um a lot except josh is about 400 times smarter than i am um yeah first of all cheers Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Um, all right. The Cubs weren't supposed to contend this year. I, you, you and I both knew that. I think they teased us a little bit in April, had a 14-10 had and 10 start to the season, and then the, the, there's a malaise there. They've got basically no money on the books moving forward next year. Jason Hayward's godforsaken contract finally comes off the books. Uh, it looks like Kyle Hendricks probably walks. He's had a great career, but they'll probably move on from him. They've got some young pitching coming up. They've got a young first baseman on a rookie deal. Morell's going to play somewhere. He's on a rookie deal. It looks like they have a young catcher in Miguel Amaya coming up who can handle the catching duties. He'll be on a rookie deal. I'm asking all of that to ask this. Economically, does it make sense for a franchise like the Cubs to offer Shohei Otani the moon and the sun?
2: Absolutely. I mean, the thing that, that, as a Cubs fan that's always kind of frustrating to me is like, why don't the Cubs act like the Yankees, or at least the Yankees used to? Yeah. I mean, they can afford it. I, I know that the Ricketts say that you know they can't afford it, but they can afford it. I, I, I've been to Wrigley. You've been
1: to Wrigley. Turn your mic this way just a yeah. little. There you go, right there. Yeah, I've been to Wrigley a bunch. I, I mean, I can't even imagine. So I have a friend in in baseball circles. I won't say what organization. He's he's an executive. He estimates Otani will get fifty five million dollars a year, which is a monstrous deal. And I asked him. I said, Is he worth it? And this is an organization that probably won't be involved in the bidding. And he he said, oh, absolutely. He said, number one, you get an elite pitcher, elite hitter. And the other thing that you get is you get this guy who is so charismatic and so marketable, and you move him off the West Coast where he's already the best player in the world. We don't stay up till 935 to watch a lot of baseball games throughout the course of a summer. And if you live on the East Coast, it's 1035. Shohei Otani's kind of he's a superstar but nobody really sees him play he said you'd get that and then you'd get the japanese market which is baseball crazy they love baseball he said he he would pay for himself in marketing and that kind of thing over and over he said yeah you'd have a cap hit it might restrict what you could do to surround him later in the contract and maybe at the end of the contract he wouldn't be all that favorable but it's like i'd do it and i I keep looking at the Cubs and going, it just makes so much sense, which makes me think they they won't be involved.
2: Well, obviously, as a Cubs fan, I want him, but also the the economics makes sense. I mean, the, imagine the amount of merchandise that they w- would move if they if they brought him
1: in. I mean, I I know somebody who would buy three jerseys within <laughs> seconds. I mean, I'm just one guy, but yeah. But also.
2: If we think about it in terms of Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball needs him uh, in a big market. I mean, I guess technically he's in a big market, but he plays for a team that nobody cares about.
1: Yeah, he's in the wrong team yeah. in that market. And most people think he'll stay in that market and go to the Dodgers. I, just, I have a suspicion for some reason that because baseball wants him east or central time zone that that's what's going to happen. But maybe that's wishful thinking.
2: I will say, though, when I lived on Eastern time, I stayed up at night to watch Barry Bonds. Yeah. But that only Barry Bonds. Yeah. I can't say that about anybody.
1: And else. that's the thing. I mean, you know, baseball wants to – and it's done some great things with the with the rules changes and, and all that stuff. It's, um, It would make so much sense. And not, They can't fix it. Obviously, if the Dodgers are the highest bidder, and that's where he wants to be. That's where he'll be. But it would make so much sense for the game. If he were a Yankee, a Red Sox, a Cub, a Brave, a Philly, or whatever – where more people see him more often and he can become much easier. The not only the face of the game, but one of the most prominent athletes in sports, because right now, even though he's the face of baseball, he's there's probably 20 NBA guys that are more uh, recognizable NFL quarterbacks. The whole deal, you put him make him a Yankee or a cub or something like that. I think that changes. But again, maybe that's wishful thinking on my part
2: baseball just has a problem in general. Like I think about when I was a kid, how many superstars that we like looked up to in baseball. And for whatever reason, I mean, I don't know, maybe like this generation of kids uh, don't care as much about baseball, but it just doesn't seem like there's that. It just seems like there's a lot of very good players, but it doesn't seem like, um, but, but a lot of these very good players could be superstars if they were marketed correctly. And I think that that's the kind of the big problem is that, um, you know, certain guys like Ken Griffey Jr., you, you didn't have to market that guy. Like he was just like had an incredible, you know, vibe. Yeah, that's and the so, word too. Yeah. yeah. And so you and so like kids just like you saw him as a kid and you just, you know, like this guy's cool. You right? wanted to be him. Exactly. Like, I mean, he showed up for like the home run derby with his hat backwards and every kid the next day on the playground, had their hat backwards.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For uh, the longest time you yeah. had to tell the kids, Hey, you've got to turn your hat around <laughs> yeah. on the field. Yeah. Yeah. You can't wear it that way.
2: Yeah. And I think that's the big problem it, though, is that, um, I, I think part of that issue maybe is that unless you have somebody who's just transcendent, um, that you ha- they have to be marketed and and you really want them in the big markets. I know that's not competitively. Maybe that's not, you know, what everybody wants, but in yeah, tor- we, if you're a major league baseball, that's what you want.
1: We pay less attention to Aaron judge last year. If he's a Royal, right? Just way it is. I mean, if he's a Detroit tiger, you, 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 know of it, but you're not glued to it. The fact that he was doing it as a Yankee and all that stuff made people kind of lock into it. Uh, a little background on uh, Josh here as a personal thing. Uh, we've obviously known each other from our kids and that kind of thing. When my oldest was a freshman, at the University of Arkansas, she was taking a entry-level microeconomics class, if I recall correctly. This was pre-pandemic. Um, freshman year at Arkansas in the business school, they they throw kind of everything at them to do two things. To one, what are you interested in, and are you really interested in this? And so she was in this economics class. It was February of 2020. And the professor... Um, Gave her, gave them an assignment and he said, here's this convoluted economics. It looked like an equation to me. Um No one's ever been able to solve it. If you can solve this and explain your work, you get an A. You can quit coming to class. You get an A. And so Campbell sent it to me and I said, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not going to solve it. And I said, I bet I know somebody who might be able to take a crack at it. And so I send it to Josh, and I was like, Hey, I explain the deal. Fifteen minutes later, I get this big long answer, and I'm like, Hey, can you walk me kind of through how you did that? And so he sends that to. and Campbell takes it to the professor, who's just blown away, and he says, All right, you have to be honest with me. You didn't do this. And she said, No, I didn't do it. It's one of my dad's friends. He's a professor at 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 Ole Miss. And he was just wowed by it. He's like, well, you, you have to walk me through it. And she took her a while and she did. And he honored it. He gave her an A. Now she did have to go to the rest of the class because, and she needed to, she needed to learn. And it turns out the rest of the class had like two weeks left because we shut society down three weeks later or whatever it was. But it was, it was a funny, funny story. He was blown away by it. He, she became one of his favorite students because he was, he thought it was, I think he was amazed. I don't think he thought anybody would get it. And she said he was just floored. So. It was, remains a funny story. Well,
2: she had to do a great job though, because if I recall, like, yeah, you said, okay, he, he wants, he wants her to explain it. Can you, can you, can you help her understand what this was, was? And so, yeah, I just sent back something that was like, here's like, what's going on. This is why we're doing it. That's what, and, and I wasn't sure. Cause I was like, okay, I don't know what he's going to expect. I don't know what he's taught. So yeah. like, I don't know if even what I'm sending will make sense and all that sort of stuff. So, but it, I mean, she must've done a great job though, uh, explaining it.
1: She, she did. And she said he's a really good professor. And it was one of those deals where that was one of those classes that when everything got shut down, she missed it. You know, she's like, I don't want to stop going to the class. I like the class. I'm learning something as opposed to the next year where all the kids learned how to do is cheat for a, a, an entire year. It's like, it was so funny. She graduated, uh last, I guess earlier this month, at least earlier in, middle of May, whatever, two weeks ago. And she has this core group of friends that all lived in the sorority house together their sophomore year. And everything was on zoom. There was nowhere to go. It was, everything was shut down. All the you know, she got into the, uh, Walton excellence or whatever it's called. And of course they never met. So that was an experience gone by the wayside, you know, and, and you couldn't go to games. Um, because we had to be socially distanced and you couldn't do anything. You just lived in the house and everything was on zoom and they all learned how to cheat. That's what they learned. And and it was so funny to hear them kind of talk about it, you know, freely now that it's done. And it was, it was just, you realize, I mean, we're not going to get on this, I promise, but you realize how much just experienced kids the ones at Ole Miss and Auburn or anywhere else, lost in that whole year and a half when everything went away from in-person and to this Zoom thing. And you and I have talked about this before. I don't know how you teach something as complex as economics, for example, via Zoom. It feels like that's something that for, for a young person to truly absorb the nuances of what it is that someone like you is trying to teach, there has to be some in-person eye contact where you can look out into your class and say, Hey, they're getting this, or hey, I'm 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 bouncing something off a rubber wall right now. I've lost them somewhere. I've got to go back. My job is to teach them. I'm employed by the university to teach young people. That is ultimately the job. And I need to slow down, I need to circle back. Let's let's go back to this. You can't do that on Zoom because yeah, you can see kids or whatnot, but totally different deal.
2: People think I'm crazy when I say this, but, uh, every class that I teach, uh, has a personality and I can feel it. And when you're on zoom, that's, it completely goes away. And this was one of the reasons why I refused to teach online because I, I recognize this immediately. And, um, It is. It it doesn't make sense. I can't describe it. I can't articulate what the feeling is. But if I explain something and people don't get it, I I don't have to ask them. Like, and I don't even really have to look at them. Like I can feel it Mm -hmm. in the room, and it's it's kind of crazy. Um, And the flip
1: side is true, right? When they're getting it.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, um, you can tell when you say something and they immediately like relate it to the real world. Mm -hmm. Like there's this moment before somebody asks a question or before they make a comment about, you know, how they think this relates to the real world. There's like a moment before that where you know that somebody's going to do it. Like you just feel like you can feel that like somebody in the room like got it right. And they want to the light. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And you, you do not get that over zoom. And I will say the other thing, the flip side is that, um we we have not at all uh wrestled with like the long-term damages that are going to come from this because the expectations of students have changed dramatically um in what way like they um they think everything is too hard um because everything just kind of the professors all just, you know, when everything went back to normal, the professors just went back to normal. But a lot of them apparently were not, you know, doing things normally when everything was on Zoom, because you you just know it. And I, so I'm department chair. So if there's something to complain about, people come and complain about it to me. And initially, I had, you know, some faculty coming to me and just saying, like, is anybody else, you know, noticing things in class, or like, has anybody kind of said anything about their classes and and at first, obviously, I say no, because they're the first people to come to me. But then over time, it was like more people. And then I thought, OK, well, maybe it's just like a, um, you know, like may, maybe it has something to do with how old Miss handled it. But then I talked to people at, you know, other universities and they get there. They have exactly the same stories is that um, I think that Zoom classes made things a lot easier for sure, students for sure and when things went back to normal um you know there was a sort of expectational shift and the thing is is like the classes where people were talking about this these were not the classes um where like these are not classes with the juniors and seniors in them like so it was not people who had class before the pandemic and then after the pandemic like for the most part they were kids uh, in like freshman and sophomore classes, which means that actually where the dumbing down of, of class happened was at their high schools. And, um, and you know, that's awful because on the one hand, you know, um, professors get really frustrated because they're like, well, you you know, like this has always been the expectation. Like, why, why aren't they, you know, um, you, you know, like why is, why is it a problem or something? And, on the other hand, I mean, you see it from the perspective of the students. Like, all you know is what you know. I mean, if you're an 18-year-old kid and you spent two years online, like, you don't know that this is not normal because you never got to be 17, 18 years old, you know, in a different reality where you weren't on Zoom the whole well,
1: time. Well, and you, you could just turn your camera off on yeah. Zoom. You could just disappear for a while. And it wasn't really graded that you couldn't really, couldn't really grade kids and then... You had the even even when kids went back to school that year, it was everything was about the virus. Everything was about testing. It was about the whole. It, was, it became a joke. Like I would hear my son, and I'm sure your son told you the same thing. They knew when when the someone walked into the room that someone's going out. You know, they yep. get on the intercom, and you were going out for a week, two weeks. You had to go get tested. You know, all that stuff. Well, that's disruptive. And it became like a running joke. If you got called to the office, it was like, hey, see you in two weeks. And they laugh about it. But at the same time, they, it was always a state of dread. Yep. And so then you show up to college and you haven't studied. and You're not used to studying. And they've taken away some of the, the, the things that you had to do to maybe qualify for a particular college or to qualify for a particular scholarship or whatever. And, you know, like when we went to college – if you didn't show up for class they just failed you no one asked questions now when kids don't show up for class you've got someone's going to call and check on them and i'm not saying that's not a good thing but i'm not sure that the the softening of of young people i don't know that it's their fault i think the fault goes way above
2: them oh no i well here's my bigger concern my bigger concern is that this is not all students so there's like significant distributional effects here because there are tons of students um, where it's like nothing ever changed. And then there are other students that are kind of like, this is like, you're asking way too much of me." And that's what I really feel bad about because you know, the, th- those students got a raw deal, and so like they don't even know that um, you know th- they don't even know that their expectations have been set wrong.
1: All right, let me ask you about some of the stuff that's going on in the world. Um, stuff that I don't necessarily understand, and I know you do. You write about it on Substack against economic forces. Um, you wrote about greedflation today. We'll touch on greedflation in a minute. The big story today is the debt ceiling. They've reportedly reached a deal in the House, they're going to push it through the Senate. Um, You'll see Wall Street Journal here. Senate leaders were working to iron out an agreement Thursday to fast track a vote on final passage of the bipartisan debt ceiling deal as lawmakers rush to raise the nation's borrowing limit before Monday's deadline. We will keep working until the job is done. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, said time is a luxury the Senate does not have if we want to prevent default. Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, are trying to appease senators of both parties who have criticized the deal and are seeking amendment votes and other conditions. If all 100 senators consent to speed up the process, voting on amendments could start as soon as later Thursday. There's a quote from John Thune from South Dakota, regardless. Here's my question. It's a question. A lot of people have, um, should we be concerned? I know there's the defaulting on the loans and, and that could have been chaotic. Reaching some sort of a, of a deal on the debt ceiling is probably a good thing, but should we be concerned that there's not more of an emphasis nationally among people that, hey, this increasing debt at this exponential level is at some point, whether it's our generation or the next one, is it's going to hurt, right? We're on the precipice of unsustainable debt. Um,
2: we are going to pay almost as much money in interest on the debt this year as we pay for the entire defense budget like that's not sustainable uh partially because we have an enormous defense budget so the idea well when you're
1: defending ukraine i mean you know i mean that's not easy yeah i mean i'm sorry
2: no it's fine we have i mean no but i mean that gets i mean that gets to the to the point here though is that uh, the entire point of the debt ceiling, the entire reason that they, you have the debt ceiling is to have these periodic times when you can fight over this stuff. Like that's the only reason you would have it. Like there's no, um, like there's no limit that's being imposed on the market or something like that, you know, from the market on our debt. Uh, this is an artificially imposed limit. So the only reason you would have an artificially imposed limit is to induce people to have these debates. Um, With that being said, I mean, what they ended up negotiating is not really that much. I mean, they estimate that it's going to save the government, uh, you know, somewhere between 800 billion and 1 trillion over 10 years. And so, but I mean, to put that in perspective, you know, that's like um, all all the savings over that one uh, or over those 10 years, I mean, would go. Go to cover like a current year's worth of like defense expenditures. So like that's not so in terms of like what we're uh, like what we're doing. Like you know they're making a big deal like oh like well we we came to an agreement and we're being more fiscally responsible. I mean like it's better than nothing, but it's not like they did something dramatic that uh, that that's going to change the trajectory of the debt. I mean it's good that they did
1: something rather than nothing, but I mean. So here's a question. I, I, I mentioned that you were coming on, on rebelgrove.com, and some people said that they had some questions, and they posted them. And one of them is, is uh, I'll get to his first question, but since we're talking about the debt ceiling, his question is, I know it will hurt short-term if we don't extend the debt ceiling, we being the U.S., of course, with jobs, et cetera, interest rates, but long-term, would it be best to default and make the government budget better? Would the pain be worth it? I don't think so, because we don't know how...
2: how we don't know how severe that that would become. Um, we've never seen, uh, a country that essentially controls like the global reserve currency and the global reserve asset of the world, uh, default. And, uh, it would be, it, so it would be catastrophic for the U S but it would also be catastrophic for everyone else using dollars, everyone else, um, who's holding like the existing debt. Um, I mean, I think that, I mean, frankly, we live in a republic. So, um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the reason that the politicians don't seem to care is maybe that the voters don't seem to care. I mean, there's no, there, there seems to be no repercussions for running up all, all of this debt. Um, I mean, it seems to be a bipartisan effort, uh, you
1: know. Um, I mean, we well, it passed the House in. Huge numbers. I mean, this yeah. was not a close vote. The, the Republicans have the majority in the house and they did not put a lot of teeth in their negotiations. Yeah. In fact, the, the really the only Republicans that kind of voted against it were those, the 20 that were against McConnell, not McConnell, against. Yeah. McConnell getting the, um, the speakership. Yeah. So
2: I think it would be a very, I think it would be very bad to default. Um, I don't think that we want to. I don't think that we want to try that. Um, but there needs to be accountability, um, mm. and like there's been no punishment for being, you know, uh, frivolous with spending and things like that. The, I mean, the main issue here is is that everything uh, individually has a constituency. Nobody wants to pay higher taxes to to cover the debt. Um, if you decide that you want to cut spending. I mean, the biggest problem that we have uh, when we look at the debt is that like the vast majority of like what we like the, the United States government is just a massive insurance company. I mean, they, they, the tax dollars are the premiums and then they pay out benefits in the form of social security, Medicare, Medicaid, all of these things. That's an enormous amount of spending that gets done. And there's a constituency for all of those things. And you can't snap your fingers and, and, and you know, fix those things. And the, but the reason I bring that up is, look, maybe that's what we want. Maybe we, maybe we want all this stuff. So I'm not making a comment about like, whether this is good or bad. What I'm saying is, is that if you look historically at countries, like we don't have a historical precedent to look at because if you look historically at countries, um, there are countries that experience enormous levels of debt, but they experience enormous levels of debt because like they went to war. Right. And so they had to borrow a bunch of money to fight the war, but then the war ends and the spending stops, but the tax, the taxation continues. So now you have, ta- you have the same tax revenue that you had, but you have sub- substantially less spending. So what do you do? You use that to pay down the debt and you just pay down the debt over like a long period of time. Um, if you look at the history of like Great Britain, I mean, that's essentially, that's what their debt looks like. You look at uh, a graph of their debt, and you can see every time they went to war, because there's just a big spike, and then it gradually draws down, and there's a big spike, and it gradually draws down. But here, um, our spending is permanent, so we're not going to get the uh, we're we're not going to you know the the war is not going to end, so to speak, right? The I mean we're fighting a war on old age and um, you know disease, and that's never going to end. So uh, that spending. Uh, you know, it, it seems incredibly difficult um, to make any changes to those programs. Um, and, and you know, partially because some people listening right now are thinking, I don't want changes to those programs. Like, I, I want those
1: things. Right. Um, but when you say it's not sustainable, what does that look like in r- real life when you hit the point where it's not sustainable? Yeah,
2: I think that, well, I think the, the, this is the other big problem, is that a lot of this stuff is entirely linked to the fact that the United States has to spend a ton of money on defense uh, because we're like the world's global superpower. Um, And it's kind of like this system that is sustained because we have this global reserve status of our currency. So there's a huge demand out there for dollars. And because there's a huge demand out there for dollars, we can borrow more money than than another country could borrow. Um, We can we can print more money than uh, other places could print um, because there's a, there's a demand for it. So it's not going to affect prices or anything like that. Um, The problem is, is like all of these things have to work in conjunction with each other for this to continue. And if one of these things stops, you know, I mean people all the time say, well, the United States should spend less on defense. Okay. Well, how much should they spend? Because like we, we, part of the reason we spend a lot of money is because we're the global superpower. Now people will point to things like, Oh, well we paid like four times what we should have paid for this plane or something like that. Okay. Then, you know, maybe that's a place where we, where we can do that. But also it's like, why are we paying four times more for the plane? And are we really paying four times more for the plane? How do we know? Right. I mean, it's not like there's a market for like, you know, F-15s or something and you don't, you know, there's not, it's not like uh, I can leave here and go, you know, Swing by the F yeah, fifteen store. You're not going to Clark <laughs> Ford to get an F-, F. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, so it's hard, you know. Like, um, I mean, we can base it on cost, but again, like the companies that produce these things, they're producing them, you know, um, just like any company to make a profit. So, like, how do we know, like, how do we know what we should spend? But, but the point is, is that you know, if the, the United States is going to be this world global superpower, and they're going to have to spend a lot of money on defense. And, you know, frankly, just like paying half as much for an F-15 or something like that is not going to solve the problem. Um, but, you know, if they're going to maintain that, there's going to be a lot of defense spending. And so if there's going to be a lot of defense spending, then the question is, you know, um, do you want the the big social safety net? And kind of like we're doing like a little bit of everything. Like if you look around the world, there are a lot of countries that don't spend that much money on defense, um, partially because they're free riding off of the United States. Yeah. Um, and, and then they have a big social safety net. Well, of course they can pay, you know, like they're saving all this money on defense. Of course they can have the big social safety net. Um, other places not only have the big social safety net, but they have very high tax rates. And so, you know, um, everything, the the fundamental problem is that everybody is looking for a solution. And the thing that economics teaches you is there are no solutions. There are trade-offs, everything that you do, there's a cost and a benefit and you have to, and you have to make that determination. And when it comes to government programs, and when it comes to the debt, and when it comes to taxation, um, everybody's just kind of like, "Well, I don't want higher taxes. I don't want to cut Medicare. I don't want to cut Social Security. I don't want to cut defense." Okay, well, we're running out of things, right? And so, at, at that point, you know, um, you know, you're you're at an impasse. And so, I think that, um, you know. I, The other thing about the government is is because we are the global reserve currency, because we have the global reserve asset, I mean, we could technically probably run deficits like perpetually. We just can't run deficits that grow faster than the economy. Because, I mean, if you think about it this way, um, if I have a million dollars worth of debt, that's a lot different than if Bill Gates has a million dollars worth of debt, right? Because Bill Gates he's just going to cut a check for a million dollars and now his debt's gone. Right. I, I can't cut a check for a million dollars. So, um, if we had even if we just had smaller deficits, we could potentially, you know, through economic growth, eventually the, you know, the debt as a percentage of, you know, GDP, the percentage of the total income in the economy would be getting smaller. And as it gets smaller, then it, you know, it becomes more sustainable. And right now, I mean, it's getting larger and it can't continue to get larger um, and still and still be sustainable. You mentioned the global
1: reserve currency being the dollar. There's – I don't know whether this is far-fetched. I listened to a podcast. It's uh, breaking points where they talk about there are countries, China and other countries, Russia, that are at least flirting with the idea, and I'm putting this in very elementary terms, of getting away from the dollar and there are there's a feeling that once that happens if that happens that that's catastrophic for the american economy can you explain that to people like me who need it explained at an elementary level
2: yeah essentially the way that we are able to run these deficits and and um, is that we have a global reserve currency of the world so think about why this matters the reason why it matters is like if you're in a small country and you have your own currency uh you are not just buying and selling things from people in your own country you're buying and selling things from people all over the world right we don't think about this because we have dollars i can offer anybody in the world dollars right now for anything that i want to buy and they will take it that's not true of most currencies there's like a handful of currencies where that's true and so um if that's the case, then there's this demand for dollars that's, that's out there. So either people have to take, um, you know, when, so what, what tends to happen is like foreign trade gets invoiced in dollars and it gets invoiced in dollars because people like if, if you're two countries and you know, neither one of you has one of these currencies that people are willing to, to trade with, you just invoice things in dollars you expect payment in dollars and then you use those dollars to buy dollar denominated goods abroad. And and that's how the, the system functions. Well, what that means is, is that we can have a larger supply of dollars than we could otherwise, because there's just more demand for those dollars. And so uh, if that global reserve status goes away, uh, then that demand for dollars is going to go down. And when You know, the demand for dollars uh, goes down, holding the supply constant. What's going to happen is, you know, prices go up. Dollar-denominated prices go up, and so, um, and so, you know, if you think about a catastrophic thing like just everybody wakes up tomorrow and they decide we're going to use the euro or you know the yuan or whatever, um, that would be catastrophic because what you would have happen is all of a sudden the demand for dollars would dry up and um, and you'd see dramatic. Changes in prices, dramatic changes in exchange rates—it it would be chaos. Um, now, of course, you know no one expects it to just happen overnight, right? Um, but there is a question of like, well, how long does it take? Because if something like that were to happen, you know, if it takes place over say like fifty years, then we, nobody will probably notice. If it takes place over five years, uh, that's probably going to come with a lot of economic pain, at least in the United States, to
1: people's retirement accounts and yep. things of that nature, right? I mean, right. people's retirement accounts would be decimated. I would, I would guess.
2: Yeah. And and it's also going to, it would also completely start to like rearrange like global trade because if all of a sudden all these exchange rates start, you know, uh, adjusting to this new world, um, suddenly like, you know, some country that's always produced, you know, some particular good. Now, all of a sudden that good is way more expensive to buy from them than it is to buy from somebody in some other country. And then all of a sudden that industry in that country just dies. And, um, and so you you know the, the chaos that would ensue is um you know sort of uh, crazy and i think this is something though that also like we need to think about from the perspective of of you know being voters so i'll give you an analogy like one of the things that so i don't know um when the bank of england was created the bank of england was created essentially the the uh uh, the English had the Glorious Revolution, and and they replaced their king with the Dutch king. And he needed money, but nobody really wanted to give him money because the old king was over in France, and the king of France loved this because he was like, "Oh, this, you know, this is a I'll try to restore this guy to you know, yeah, uh, to to the throne." And that will kill two birds with one stone, because it like I will, you know, completely destroy, you know, my main enemy. And also I'll install a new king who will owe me his life. Yeah. And so uh and so naturally like no one wants to lend to the Dutch king because like if he loses, you'd never get repaid. Right. Okay. So one of the things that um so one of the things that he did is they had some outstanding debt and he created uh he chartered uh well, I technically parliament did it, but they chartered the Bank of England. And they chartered the Bank of England in exchange for the Bank of England agreeing to buy up a bunch of British government debt um, and consolidate that debt at lower interest rates. Um, And that's what they did. Um, But what they kind of gradually learned over time is that this was an incredibly effective strategy at preventing the old king from coming back. And the reason is, is now... Britain's monetary system was centered around the Bank of England because it became the biggest, most important bank in England. And what's their biggest asset? It's government debt. Well, what's the first thing that a new king would do? He would repudiate the old debt. Well, if a new king comes in, he repudiates all of the old debt. The Bank of England goes under. The the financial system is in shambles. The monetary system starts to break down. Who's going to support that? Right. And so they kind of realize that a central bank that holds uh, sovereign debt, um, kind of has uh, not perfect, uh, insurance, but some level of insurance against like a revolution or against, um, you know, people going against the, the government. Um, so I bring that up because I see a parallel to this in the modern world. So because the U S is, has the global reserve currency, um, what that means is that most countries around the world are holding uh dollar reserves, and some of these are literally dollars um sitting in bank accounts. some of them are uh u s treasury bonds and things like that, but they're just holding dollar you know they're they're holding you know actual dollars or or they're holding you know treasuries and one of the things the United States has begun to do uh over the last couple of decades is kind of use uh, the same sort of tool. So a country does something that the United States doesn't like, um, they freeze their reserves or, uh, or or something like that. And so what it's, you know, essentially what it's doing is like you have, they're trying to make it so that you have no incentive to, um, to go against the country that provides this global reserve asset. Um, because they can just wipe out that asset with like the flip of a switch. And that's um, and the thing is, is that that can be an effective tool. Um, But mostly it's an effective tool. If you're, if you are the one major power in the world and there's no rival power, but if there's multiple rivals in the world, Um, or if there's a bunch of smaller rivals that kind of get together and say, Hey, this is, this is nonsense. We shouldn't put up with this. Like let's create our own system kind of thing. Um, then doing those kinds of things can actually backfire and it can, um, and it it can actually take the world from being this unipolar world with the United States at the center and create a multipolar world where you have a bunch of different, uh, Sort of groups of countries that um, to kind of have their own thing going or something like that, or, or, or I mean, it could just be that a couple big uh, countries kind of get together and do it. And I think that that's that's um, like China and Russia, yes, for example. I think that's what we should be afraid of is that you know China is kind of playing both sides, um, and you know, I mean, like one of the things that China was doing early on is like the the, the West was putting all these like restrictions on you know, commodities that are produced in Russia. And so like, you know, um, you you know, you can't buy Russian oil or things like that. Right. Well, if you're neutral, Russia has oil they can't sell. So if you're neutral, you can go to Russia and say, you know what, we'll buy it. But, you know, there's a risk for us buying it. So you're going to have to sell it to us at a lower price. Yeah. And then because the market price has gone up, because you're not allowed to use the oil coming from Russia, the price on the market is high. And so if you're neutral, you could go buy some of the oil at a low price and turn around and sell the oil at a high price. And, you know, there's ways to conceal where it came from. Oil is fungible. You know, I mean, I doubt that they're going to buy like, you know, uh, barrels of oil from, from Russia with Russian, you know, uh, you know, letters on them and then just, you know, (laughs) try to sell that to somebody, right? Like, I mean, they'll at least swap the barrels out or something, but I mean, you can do that kind of thing. But also, you know, China is kind of, um, you know, I think that China kind of wants to see how this is going to play out. And so they've kind of just been, you know, giving lip service to both sides. And, uh, but, but what you see happening is that, uh, Russia and China, for the last like 10 years have been slowly kind of diversifying away from the dollar. And as they kind of do that, I mean, they're doing that on purpose because they don't want the United States to be able to just one day say, Hey, you know, those bonds that you have, we're not going to pay those. Or, you know, those, uh, you know, those, uh, balances that you have that are sitting in these banks, mm, th- those are gone. Um, they, they don't want to, they don't want to take that chance. And the thing is, is the big threat isn't so much like if Russia and China tried to do this alone, it probably wouldn't work because as, as big as they are, they're, they're still probably not big enough. Um, but like the big concern is not that it's just going to be China and Russia. The big concern is what if Saudi Arabia starts playing both sides? Yeah. What if Brazil starts playing both sides? Um, What if like some of these countries actually just decide to side with Russia and China in some new, um, you know, uh, alliance, you know, trade alliance or something like that, that that's the big concern. And then that, you know, has the potential to undermine, you know, the dollars reserve status. And I think that this is something that people really need to be thinking about and and thinking about, you know, when they're walking into like the voting booth and when they're listening to politicians talk about these things. And when you know politicians have debates, these are things that should be brought up in the debates and talked about.
1: And they, they're not; they're they, not discussed right. at all.
2: And I think that that's the big thing: is that we, we, you know, we have to push these things to the to the front of the line and to be asked because they, you know, they're not. Um, I, I there there seems to be this attitude that you know, there's no better alternative out there than the dollar, so we don't really need to worry about this. And you know, I mean, there is no better alternative until one day. Until so one day there is, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And,
1: and and yeah, if you if you just kind of watch the the landscape and you pay attention to it, like it's the reason that the deal in Ukraine, the conflict in Ukraine bothers me as much as it does. I think is because I'm paying attention to it a little bit. When the documents got leaked, the the young, what is it? it was an officer of some sort, and and, and he leaked them. I think in large part because he wanted to impress his friends. And there was this, in, in my field, in the media, this let's expose him and get him and put him behind bars. And I was more like, hey, let's look at what he's leaking here. What's in the documents? I mean, I mean this with respect to him, but I mean, who cares? I mean, let's figure out what's what's in the documents. And what's in the documents is the president of Ukraine wants missiles, that he can fire at Russia. And we all understand why Ukraine wants to protect itself. But the original deal was, hey, we're going to help you protect yourself from an invasion, but you can't turn around and invade. We don't want to be a part of that because the ripple effect of that could be China saying, okay, we're getting involved now. And that that just got glossed over completely, and the media won't cover it. No one will talk about it, and and we're about to go into a presidential election cycle, I fear, where it's going to be a sitting president who will be 82 years old, who is frail. He fell today at the U.S. Air Force Academy graduation. I mean, maybe he tripped over a wire. It happens. I get it. But let's face it. We don't see our presidents falling all the time the way that we do see old men fall. And I'm glad he didn't break a hip or something. I don't wish any ill will on the man, but he's probably going to be running against a 78 year old at that time, former president, twice impeached, indicted, undergoing criminal investigation. And the whole campaign, Josh, in my opinion is going to be about Trump fighting over the 2020 election being stolen from him and them calling each other names And Trump going after Hunter Biden and the president basically, Joe Biden, basically just saying, hey, this guy can't beat me because so many people hate him. I'm going to hide in a bunker essentially for the next six, seven months, get to election day, win, and we go through another election cycle where we don't talk about the things that actually impact people like you and me and more importantly, our children down the road. I think the biggest
2: problem with our foreign policy is like no one ever articulates what the goal is like i mean this was the same thing in like uh iraq and afghanistan it just got to a point where people are like why are we there mm-hmm. and that's the thing is the um is that when people get to that point like um it doesn't even matter whether you There's a legitimate reason to be there at that point because once people decide like like, I can't I can't figure out why we're here. I don't know why this is still going on. Um, Once you get to that point, you know, we live in a republic, right? People are just going to be like, I don't understand what's going on. Like, let's just get out of here. And the thing is, it's like they, they, you know, the initial response in, in this case you know it was kind of obvious like it didn't need much explanation for people because they were like oh yeah this country has been invaded we're the global superpower this is what we do we go in and we support them um but eventually we're going to get to a point where people are like why are we still here why why are we still sending money or why are we still sending weapons or like what is the objective why have we not
1: been able to force a negotiated peace
2: yeah and 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 i think that's the thing is that people um I think you know the people in the government work for us. We don't work for them. And so, like it's their duty to come out and tell us what it is and And look, I mean, people can, you know, um, you know part of the part of the great thing about a republic is that it's not a direct democracy. And so, you know, if somebody in power says, look, I get that this is unpopular, but this is the right thing to do, they can still, you know, they can still do it. And if they're proven right, then, you know, um, then they'll have political success. And if they're proven wrong, then they'll suffer political defeat and, you know, and, and that sort of thing. But if, if they're not going to clearly articulate what, like, what the goal is, then – um this is just going to end up the same way as everything else as people are going to get tired of it. And people are going to be like, why is it? Why are we there? What are we doing? What is this? What, like, what is the objective? And if you don't, you know, if you can't clearly articulate an objective, you're going to very quickly lose like
1: support. What does it tell someone like you who's not in the media, that the media is almost become a propaganda arm. And when I say that, I don't mean the whole Republican Democrat thing, but I'll give it a better example. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Whose father was Robert F. Kennedy. Whose uncle was John F. Kennedy, a former American president? For goodness' sake! I mean, the Kennedy family is a political power in this country. It's it's uh it's one of the most recognizable names in in world politics. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running for president, has some grassroots momentum, and yet the media is not covering his campaign, other than Fox News, ironically. Uh, the media is not covering his campaign. There aren't going to be debates for a primary. And there's no outcry at all about, hey, you know what? Throughout our history, sitting presidents have been challenged. Now they rarely have been defeated. It's happened a time, I think, but but sitting presidents have been challenged. People run against them and they have to they have to compete. And and there there's no there's no outcry for that.
3: This podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. When you're at your best, you can do great things, but sometimes life gets you bogged down. You may feel overwhelmed or like you're not showing up the way you want to working with a therapist can help you get closer to the best version of you because when you feel empowered you're more prepared to take on everything life throws at you I've used therapy in the past it's a great thing to talk to somebody new talk to somebody fresh you can talk to friends you can talk to family but sometimes they have preconceived notions they have uh, different ways and motions that are involved with that talk to a professional who can help you right from the very beginning so if you're thinking about giving therapy a try BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable. It's entirely online. You can even get them to set the camera on or off. You can make it the experience you want it to be by filling out a brief questionnaire, get matched with a licensed therapist, switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com mpw today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash mpw. Also, spring is in full swing and summer's right around the corner. Heavenly Sunshine Property Services would like to take the opportunity to remind you about the importance of taking care of your outdoor living spaces. Regular maintenance is key to preserving the beauty and integrity of your home or business. And one of the most effective ways to maintain your home is through power washing. Some of the key benefits include curb appeal, damage prevention, creating a healthier environment, and also saves you time and money. Heavenly Sunshine property has been serving the Mid-South for four decades. That includes Oxford. Their full-service commercial and residential property maintenance includes power washing, soft wash, roof cleaning, facade cleaning, and window cleaning. Don't wait until it's too late. Contact them today to enjoy a brighter, cleaner outdoor living space. Visit the website at HeavenlySunshine.com or call 662-342-1203 to book your free estimate. Use the code MPW10 for a 10% discount.
2: I kind of wonder, I don't know, maybe you maybe you have an opinion about this. I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this. Um I kind of wonder if like what we see as media bias is not political, but it's like class-based. So what I mean is that growing up, I always had the impression of like reporters as like blue-collar workers. And oh, I know where you're going. And yeah. like people who like really like they um, like they saw their job as like holding politicians accountable. These politicians were these um, you know, uh, were these people, and you know, a lot of them came from wealthy families and went to the best colleges and and the reporters um were guys who, you know, started in the middle of nowhere in Iowa or something, worked their way up and worked at The Washington Post. and they disdained these people. And they assumed that they were all up to something. And their job was to figure out what they're up to and like and 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 to get to the bottom of it. And now that's not at all the case. All of the like, um, all of the journalists that you see that are wor- working, or at least I don't know. I I I shouldn't say all of them because I you know I haven't like, I haven't gone through and you know it's most calculated most. But, but the thing is, is that when you look when the ones that I see the most, you know, on the things that like I care about. The people I see the most, for the most part, um, they all went to like elite universities and um, Ivy Leaguers, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um and or, you know, and, and a lot of them went to like elite private high schools in some big city in America that sends a bunch of kids to these Ivy League schools. And so like these are their classmates, these are their friends. There's no like and they share common values and they share common experiences and they see themselves as part of the same club. And so I think a lot of times it's not so much that like, I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think a lot of times it's not so much that they're just motivated politically. I think it's like they, they see these people as like their uh, contemporaries, right? They well, see- they're friends with them. They yeah.
1: hang out with them. They live in that they either live in DC or they live in the beltway or they live in Los Angeles and they all sort of run in the same circles and their kids go to the same schools and, uh, they they probably attend the same birthday parties and they go to the same soccer leagues and those type things. Yeah, I mean I think you're on to something. I don't I don't know that it's always liberal versus conservative as much as it's they surround themselves in the same echo chamber. Yeah, but I'm still stunned honestly that they also are dependent on ratings. It's one of the reasons that they love Trump. They love to hate Trump the way that they love to hate Trump because Trump is a ratings machine. No matter what you think of Donald Trump, he's a ratings machine. I mean, you know, there, when, when Donald Trump was indicted and arrested and all that stuff, I mean, they, you know, they're, they're putting the helicopters on and we spare no expense to cover this. It wasn't because they were celebrating it. And some of them were, but not at the, the at the, the corporate level. It was, Hey, this gets eyeballs at a time when network news is dying he breathes oxygen into the room. Well, so would Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And they don't cover him. And he's, nobody would ever accuse Robert F. Kennedy Jr. of being a right winger. I'm, I'm, it's the one that baffles me, honestly. The media is smart enough. These people are smart enough to know that, that Joe Biden is, is a shell of his former self from a health standpoint and that here's Robert F Kennedy Jr. the nephew of one of the most iconic presidents in American history running against him and his campaign doesn't get covered but i think this is also
2: class based the kennedys are incredibly popular in middle america like everybody thinks of jfk um you know like the kennedys are are you know um like these these guys were popular in in middle America, but the thing is is that they're not you know they kind of you know with the exception of like Ted Kennedy and even that was you know he died before you know we, we've seen some of this kind of shift, you know like they're just that's not the that's not the brand of the party anymore that's true, and so um, so for a lot of these people, I mean, I think a lot of it too is like they're just like he can't win, all he can do is just distract from whatever and so like why are we going to waste our time covering it? and now the the we can't win thing i mean the guy gets no media attention and he's pulling it like 20 percent. so the idea like yeah. we can't win he, that he can't win it's like eh, you know I, I don't know um so that tells me they don't want him to win well and i think well and also though you, there's another element to this is that the uh he has always had a very uh he's always been viewed very weird by the media anyway, because he was like this big environmental attorney and that was like seen as popular. Okay. This, you know, comes from a rich family, goes out, tries to, you know, becomes a lawyer, just tries to protect the environment or, right. or whatever. Right. And, um, but and then at the same time, he was also like the guy who was like, maybe these vaccines are giving your kids autism. And people were like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Yeah. And, um, and you know, a lot of that research turned out to be completely bogus. And so there was kind of this attitude that like, we can't take this guy seriously because I mean, still to this day, he still kind of claims that like, Oh, you know, there's more research that's been done or whatever. And, you know, I'm not going to back down from this and that, and that kind of thing. And, you know, and the thing is, is that, you know, the ship has already sailed on that. And, you know they've already um you know made up their mind on that and and setting aside any of the sort of covid vaccine stuff like that would be a huge that that would be like a um you know a huge turn off to them from from the beginning is you know if he's not willing to come out and say hey you know some of these things that I was citing were you know turned out to be bogus right like without him coming out and saying stuff like that you know they it's just kind of like no this guy's a this, this guy's a conspiracy theorist or something. And, um, you know, I, so I, I think part of it is, I think, I, I think part of it is, is class-based and I think part, well, I mean, I think a lot of it is class-based actually.
1: Do you think DeSantis can win?
2: Um, I think that, he, I think that he is, uh, a good leader. Like, I mean, to me, um, if you look at how he was on COVID, like he was very um you know initially he was like a lot of other people you know kind of like very cautious like closing things down that yeah. sort of thing but he was also like very he was he adapted a lot more than most people like um if there wasn't evidence for something he was like okay we're not going to have restrictions if there's not evidence that this works and that kind of thing um i also think that for conservatives who want somebody who will actually do things, he's shown that he's actually willing to do things. And even if, um, you know, he's going to get attacked for it in the media and things like that. To me, that's a sign of good leadership. Yeah. Now, you know, some maybe some people don't like his policies, but like, that's a separate issue. The The thing is, is that he has beliefs and he has, uh, and that, you know, he, he seems to take advice. He seems to weigh um, costs and benefits, and make decisions, and and do things like that, and that's good leadership, regardless of whether you like his policies or not. So I think he's a good leader, and so I think you know um, if he's a good leader, he should be a good president. The problem is, is he's got to get the nomination, and I, I you know, I constantly that like I was the the person who was kind of like Trump has no chance, um after you know 2020 like he's he's just he's got no chance like it'll it'll, you know like and even the
1: nomination which is what i thought too i I thought he would just disappear
2: um but here's the thing Uh, i don't know how much of the cnn town hall thing that you watched i was committed not to watching it and i ended up watching so many clips of the cnn town hall
1: i didn't watch it i I listened to the podcast that i talked about earlier and they did a very good job of recapping it to the point that i feel like i watched it and the thing is is that this
2: um this was like the if you are Donald Trump that was the greatest commercial you could have ever had. You had somebody who was asking you questions who really seemed like um you know she wanted to catch him like on something like like first of all like he doesn't what the media has never understood about this is like he doesn't play the game that most politicians play like the game that most politicians play is like you know oh i have to be consistent i have to say the same thing all the time because i don't want to be called a hypocrite or i don't want to be you know asked about this and the thing is is like he gave the most like machiavellian answer (laughs) of any presidential candidate ever when they asked him about the debt ceiling because they were like well you know you say that the republicans should you know um, should refuse to increase the debt ceiling without, you know, huge, you know, cuts to spending or something like that. But, you know, when you were president, you know, you didn't do that. And so like, why wouldn't you like, you know, aren't you being hypocritical? And his response was, no, I was president. I'm not and, president. Now, yeah. And right? he's like, I'm not president now. And it was basically like, no, look, it benefited me to raise the debt ceiling. Then it doesn't benefit me now. That's the most Machiavellian answer that anybody has ever given and they don't know what to do with this because yeah. no one acts like that. And it's just like, like. He's not on message. No. He's just out there. Well, because he, like, he is. Th- I mean, this is the thing that they don't understand is like, I- I'm using Machiavellian for a reason. Like, Machiavelli's basic philosophy on politics was like, do things that benefit your friends and do things that harm your enemies. And that's the key to success. Nothing in that is about like, be consistent on message, or like you know, uh, make people like you. No, no, that's not that's not the thing. It's like help your friends and harm your enemies, and you will be successful. And that is exactly what he does. Is that he? Um, I mean, in fairness, he doesn't seem to help his friends; he helps himself. Yeah. But the thing is, is like no one helps themselves better than he does, and and so he's all the time just like that's his philosophy. Like I'm just going to talk about how great I am and how great things are. Um, you know, when I'm in charge. And I'm going to talk about how terrible everybody else is, and I'm going to change my policy position based on what what helps me um, be popular, what helps me win, and what's best for me. And they have never like I mean, I mean, I'm sure there are other politicians that are very Machiavellian, but they at least play the game in public, right? They at least like you know try to stay on message, try not to get caught. Sure, probably most of of them, yeah, yeah. And he doesn't do that, and and the thing is, is that plays right into his hands because the people who are watching, like they. I mean, they just want him to win. And so when he just comes out and says, like, I'm going to do what it takes to win, they get super excited. I mean, you saw them in the crowd. They're going crazy for the guy when, you know, every time he has a one liner, every time that he, you know, criticizes the question, every time he just says something, you know, that
1: unexpected, like they just went nuts. He shows up in Iowa and has these massive crowds, and yet the moderates don't like him the, quote, soccer mom, and I use that in the most stereotypical way possible. I mean, I'm kidding. You know what I mean? They don't like him. He's mean. They didn't like his Twitter. He's He got beat in the swing states in 2020. The Republicans got beat in the same places in the midterm in 2022. I don't see a scenario where he wins in 2024, even, even with Biden having four years behind him where I think even the most even the most ardent Democrat supporter would not describe what we've seen so far in two and a half years of the Biden administration. Nobody would go, oh yeah, it's been a raging success. I mean, I think most people look at it and go, at, at minimum, it's just been a, a series of kind of misstarts. And, and and I think a lot of people would look at it and go, "It's
2: it's been a disaster. The Democrats managed to do something that I've never seen anybody do. And that is like... If you ever look at polling for like the president, when a president's not very popular, like I can remember like going into like 2004, like George Bush was like losing a lot of popularity. And they would do polls and the poll would say like George Bush versus Democrat. And like they would do the poll and it'd be like 55% said they vote for the Democrat. And then it would be like George Bush versus John Kerry, and they'd be like fifty-one percent for Bush, right? And it was just because it was like it it was essentially like, okay, look, if you can run generic Democrat, you can like, um, like that's the path to victory. Faceless Democrat, right, right. But you can't run faceless Democrat, like he or um, she doesn't exist, right? Like you, you can't run it. But we have now discovered faceless Democrat is Joe Biden. Yeah, he's like he's faceless Democrat because everyone knows everyone knows that he is not the typical president that everyone knows that this is not, um, that on a, on a day to day basis, he's not running meetings. I mean, you can see him answer questions like, you know, you know that a lot of the work is being done by the staff. And so, um, and so they managed to do it they managed to do it in a way because people were sort of like, yeah, this is just generic Democrat. And I like generic Democrat more than Trump. And so they all went out, you know, and, and, um, you know, vote for generic Democrat, even though it was a specific guy who's not particularly likable.
1: I think they went out and voted against Trump. No, too. exactly. Yeah yeah, 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 right. Yeah, you know. Well, that's
2: and, why they, when you right. vote for generic Democrat, that's really what you're
1: voting. You're for. voting against yeah. Trump. Yeah, right. and and, yeah. and they viewed Biden as, and I think they still do in many ways, as this. Ah, eh, he's harmless. He's not harming anything. He's not really bothering me. He's he's in bed at eight o'clock. He's not tweeting mean tweets right. at eight o'clock. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit. There's some people who want to ask about the Fed, about interest rates. I've kept you a long time, so we'll we'll, we'll get through some of these things. Uh, interest rates have skyrocketed. Houses. The Fed it continues to raise the the interest rates. They've indicated that they're going to stay hold steady here this next time, and then raise them again late this summer, early in the fall. Um, what do you see happening with interest rates over the next one year, two years? Uh depends how this it depends
2: whether or not this dramatic change in monetary policy um causes a recession um you think a recession's inevitable yeah I don't see how we avoid it because we have um we we've seen this huge dramatic increase in interest rates and you can already see that like normal behavior of banks like a lot of these banks that are failing like a lot of these banks this is like normal behavior you know you just buy treasuries and, um, you know, and you accept deposits and, you know, you make this little, um, you know, you make this little profit off the spread. And even if interest rates go up, like you really, you know, it it really doesn't harm you that much, but interest rates went up so dramatically, um, that now all of a sudden the, these assets on their balance sheet were, you know, uh, the face value was substantially less, uh, than what they paid for them. And people started worrying, well, what happens if something you know happens and they have to sell these things? And also at the same time, as interest rates um, start to rise, uh, the interest rates were not rising in like savings accounts and checking accounts, but they were rising in like money market accounts and things like that. So you had a lot of people who were parking a lot of money in these banks going, well, I'm not going to leave my money in the bank and get you know 1% when I can put it in a money market account and get 4%. And so now all of a sudden... You've got all these assets that um, are priced substantially below what you paid for them. Um, And at the same time that you have a bunch of people withdrawing money and you're only holding a fraction of, you know, the reserves, you know, a fraction of those deposits in reserve. And so you have to start selling some of these assets. Well, when you start selling those assets, you're taking a loss. Well, as you start taking losses, people start to notice and people start to get nervous. Like, is my money safe? And then this is kind of what induced these these bank failures. And, um, but in general, like, the I mean, these banks should have done a better job of hedging uh, interest rate risk. I mean, I I know a guy who used to run a hedge fund, and he, I mean, the he literally when the first bank failed, he texted me and said, the very first job I had was hedging interest rates for a, <laughs> interest rate risk for a bank. Like, how did this happen? And um, a, and so. I think that, um, I think that what I'm trying to say is the dramatic increase in interest rates created an unprecedented problem in banking. I think the reason a lot of these banks had these problems is they did not anticipate that the Fed would increase rates this quickly. And um, but if banks felt that way, then chances are like the average everyday American felt the same way that you know rates weren't going to rise th- that quickly. And so the thing is, is mortgage rates are very high. Um, And when mortgage rates are high, it makes selling houses harder. Unless you're willing to sell your price or sell your house at a lower price, and most people don't want to sell their house at a lower price. You do it if you have to. You know, if you're moving cities, then you know you really have no no choice, choice, right? But if you're just moving from one end of town to the other, you just say, "Forget it. We'll wait." And um, and so you know, this, um, these dramatically higher rates are going to work their way into um, people's behavior. People have credit card debt. They have a lot of credit card debt. When rates go up, most of their credit card interest rates are priced uh, based on some, you know, base interest, you know, like the prime rate plus something, right? Well, prime rate goes up, your rate goes up. Right. So people are paying more on that. Um, which ultimately did them not spending. Yeah. And so what happens is, is like, you know, they start accumulating more debt. And so then they have to pay, you know, and so they have to cut back on spending. Um, I just I, I don't see how it's possible. If you look at monetary policy, we had the highest growth rate of the money supply like on record during COVID, and that's why we got inflation. Um, but now we have the uh, now the money supply has declined by the largest percentage um, in the post-war era um, ever, and they continue to say, "Hey, we're still planning on tightening," and. Um I don't see how, you know, every previous time the money supply declined like this, um, you know, we had, you know, the last time it happened was under, you know, Volcker when Volcker was trying to bring down inflation and he brought down inflation, but he also induced a recession in the process. Um, you know, the most dramatic decline in the money supply ever occurred, you know, during the Great Depression. So the, you know, dramatic declines in the money supply um tend to be followed by bad things. Now, with that being said, we did have a dramatic increase in the money supply. Okay. So the money supply is still higher than it would have been otherwise. But at a certain point, if this continues, like, I mean, what's going to happen is what, you know, what's going to happen is that people aren't going to uh, have money to spend. Interest rates are going to be high, you know, um, you know, they're going to have to cut back to avoid accumulating debt. You know, all of these things are working to push down present economic behavior and push economic behavior off until the future and what that does is it tends to induce a recession
1: all right irish reb says i'm 40 i'm a small business owner if i'm already diversified in land precious metals bitcoin along with the accounts in my brokerage portfolio where should i be putting my money now for retirement purposes should i continue to dca into my brokerage accounts monthly as i've been doing or is there something else i should be looking into Well, the best thing to do if you think the market
2: is going to go down is to DCA because you can never time the market. And so, um, you know, if you DCA all the way down, you can minimize the damage. You can get back to even a lot faster um, that way. Um, So I think if you expect a recession to occur, then DCAing is a good idea uh, in the short run. In terms of the long run, it kind of depends on all of these sort of geopolitical factors Right. If you expect the dollar to lose its global reserve status, then that's um, you know um, that that's going to be um, that's going to be good for hard assets. So if you own land or you own gold or silver or Bitcoin or whatever like that, that stuff's going to tend to go up in value um, uh, because those are things that you can possess. Those are things that you can hold in your hand, and um, and that there's like a demand for so um so i think that uh you know if you think that something like that's happening like you know doing that is good um i mean this guy already seems pretty diversified so i mean the the normal like kind of argument is like when somebody says something it's like diversify towards something you know that you that you don't have like he seems pretty diversified so i you know I don't know what he's not
1: holding that he should be holding because he's he's holding a lot of uh, different things. His third question is the one I can't wait to get into for a few minutes, but I'll, I'll touch a second one because it's very long and thought out. He says, I have two kids under five. Uh, we have them both set up with brokerage accounts with 529 plans and investment accounts. We initially funded the 529 plans, but since have only been purchasing more mutual funds and ETFs in their investment accounts. My thinking is if higher education costs continue to skyrocket like they have over the past 20 to 30 years, effort. it. If you take the emotion of college out of it, it's a shit investment. No, they could gain enough knowledge by reading a couple Thomas Sowell books to be above the curve. I'd rather them have liquid accounts with no penalty other than taxes to draw from at 18 should they want to go to school, start a business, or tour with widespread panic. As an Ole Miss business school grad and the son of a teacher, I'm all for education, but these costs are insane. Do you agree, disagree, and should I change my current investment strategy for my kids? Okay, first of all, are the costs insane? Yes, the costs are insane, and the
2: cause of the higher costs is that there's more administrators per student than there's ever been. Yep. If you want the cost of education to go down, tell universities to start firing a bunch of administrators. Um, That's not going to be popular when I go to work tomorrow, but that's the true story. Yes, and it is, uh, and nobody will say it. Like everybody blames something else. Oh, it's you know, it's inflation. It's you know, the cost of the credentials. No, it's they have. That, a, you know, it's a bloated administration. Yeah. And no, it's 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 totally administration. Um, there's there's way too many people who never have contact with a student ever in their lives that, in the, in their life that work at the univers at a university, and. That, uh, you know, and that just raises the cost per student right there. Because if you never ever have uh, interactions with a student, if you're not bringing in a student, you're not generating revenue. If you're not generating revenue, then you're a pure cost, you're a drain on the budget. And look, some people have to do like some of those people have to exist. Like the university can't survive without, you know, the some of those people. Sure. But there's way, but there's way too many of those people. And, um, and, you know, there there are just so many positions that exist today that didn't exist 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And, you know, it, it really needs to be rethought. I mean, I, like, I, I'm actually going to say this on here because I never got to say this in public. <laughs> I knew Jeffrey Vitter was going to be the worst chancellor in the history of Old Miss. And here's how I knew. You know what his accomplishments were um, at every previous place that he went? Creating new positions. Oh, I created this office. I created this associate dean. I created this whatever. None of those are accomplishments. Those are all things you did that you can point to and you can write down on a list, but they are not accomplishments. Like an accomplishment is not I created this office. That's the first part of the accomplishment. If you have it if that if, if that office was essential and it accomplished something, it would be followed by I created this office and it did X. You didn't say it did X, Therefore, you just created an office. And the the creation of the office itself is apparently the the contribution that you made. I don't want somebody who's just going to come in and create new offices and new positions, without any objective or any goal for what they're going to do. And so, um, but this is why college is expensive because these types of people get rewarded at universities. Oh, I create, you know, I created this office and and well, and it's also judged by intentions. Like, oh, I created this office that's aimed at student success. Well, were the students more successful? well, we created the office of student success and it's like, well, you know, yeah. Okay. But like, maybe you want to like see whether the, you know, whether they're doing what they're doing.
1: It's, it's the difference between when you're running a business, right? You, every aspect of the business, like what I do is a very small business, but it's a business. So we have to make decisions sometimes. What, what do we travel to? What do we cover? What do we not cover? Uh, What, what shows do we do? Uh, What do we charge for advertising? what, Every decision is based on, well, does this make sense for us financially? Bottom line. And so much of the university level, like you've talked about, is you're there. You're th- I think we're a lot of universities, I'm not picking on Ole Miss or any of them, but I think this applies kind of across the board. They've really lost sight of what their purpose is. You're there because young people are there to be Educated to have an experience to, to grow up, whatever, and I think so for a lot of them. I'll give the current Ole Miss Chancellor credit. I think he sees this vividly. They're the reason you're there, and if you don't have them there, you're out of business. No, that's one thing I I will say about
2: uh, Boyce is that he is he he does understand that he's very good at that. When you talk to him, he knows what the mission is, um, and. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, they've 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 lost that. um, They they've lost sight of that. But but part of it too is is like, um, you know, a lot of this is just copycat behavior. Like, imagine that I wanted to be a chancellor, which God forbid. Okay, but like imagine that that's what the job that you wanted to have. You have to do things that demonstrate that you can do that. So what do you do? You look at other people who have done the job, and if somebody, if people are getting the job by like creating offices that no one really knows if they're successful or not, right? Like do you, if your objective is just to keep moving up, then your objective is just to create offices and then point to those offices and then move up to the next thing. And, do you know, and so it's sort of, you know, there's, there's a sort of feedback effect there where people are just kind of imitating what other people have done. And so if that is a successful strategy, it becomes the successful strategy. And I think that that's, that's uh I think that's a huge problem. I, I also think um I don't know <laughs> I, I also think we need to do a better job educating students, period. Um the I this is top to bottom. This is top to bottom. Our education system has to has to get better from kindergarten all the way through university. Um and <laughs> I'll give you a stupid example because I thought about this today. I remember when my oldest came home from elementary school one day and I said, what did you guys learn today? And he said, we, we learned the difference between a fact and an opinion. Oh, okay, like, what do you mean? And so I just start telling him, I, I just start saying things like, um, and I said, you know, like, um, you know, the Cubs won today. And, oh, that's a fact. All right, good, good job. job. All right. And then I would say, you know, um, Ice cream is good. Oh, that's your opinion, right? Okay, but then I started doing things that were. But then I asked him a question, and I said something to the effect of, "Your mother is beautiful," and he wanted to say that's an opinion, but he was afraid to say, "Oh, that's an opinion," because he would think that he was. But by saying it was an opinion, that he was saying he disagreed, or something, perhaps right? it was possible he yeah. did not think mom was <laughs> right. beautiful, right? But but actually, the reason the reason that this is important is that. Um, I think the fact versus opinion thing is a really good thing to teach little kids, but it's also something that needs to be corrected later on in life, because here's the thing, whether or not something is beautiful, you can, you can clearly say is something beautiful. It's an opinion. Okay. Um, but like there are certain things like a sunset is objectively beautiful. Like that's not an opinion. Sure. Like it's actual beauty. Right. And that's one of the things that's lacking is that's kind of like a metaphor for our system is like is that uh, there are fundamental truths about the world, um, but we try to classify them into, into boxes. And so if I'm describing something and I'm assigning an adjective to that thing, um, then that must be an opinion because an adjective is a descriptive word and someone might describe it differently. And But that's wrong.
1: I mean, it's conceivable that someone would look at a pile of dog feces and say that's beautiful. It's not a statement of opinion to say that 99.99999% of people would look at that and say that's disgusting. Therefore, it's basically a fact that that's disgusting.
2: And, and also, the thing is, is that... Um, These things are important because if you start doing things like this, lots of things that are true become opinions. And when things that are true become opinions, then there can be, then any opinion is just an opinion and you can't criticize it because it's my opinion. And, um, and you know, and, and if you do criticize it, I can say, well, we just disagree. Like we just disagree. And the thing is, is that, you know, um, that can't be true of everything. Like there are certain things that just, you know, um, we are sort of a victim of our own success in a way is that like, no, there's no society on earth has, that has ever examined itself in the way that we examine ourselves, but we look so hard on ourselves that like we basically remove all meaning from anything because we try to explain everything. We try to explain why things are the way that they are. And if we don't have an explanation, you know, um, then like we see that as a problem. And, um, or if we can't figure out how to explain something, we just assume that like, well, maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's not good. Or maybe we, um, or maybe there's really no reason for this thing to exist or, or something like that. And, um, and that's a, that's a bad state of affairs. It's completely, you know, deconstructive.
1: I think this is going to lead into the, the, this will be our final topic. It's a big one. It's something that everyone's talking about. It seems like everyone's talking about these days. I, I, my kids encounter this, your kids and enc- you, you encounter this every day. Um, ESG, two different people are asking about ESG. One says, ESG, in my opinion, will be the vehicle that could bring about tyranny in our time if not confronted and rejected quickly. Our country is laggardly wising up, but what is being taught in business schools to the younger generations regarding this topic. Also with Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock, ushering this into being and controlling the amount of capital they have to invest is education and exposing ESG for what it is the only solution to the ESG problem. And then another person just says, Point blank, what are your thoughts on BlackRock and Vanguard? Is ESG the only trick they're up to? ESG is a scam. It's like a complete scam.
2: It's a hundred percent scam. There's environmental, he, social, government. Yeah, here's how you know that it's a scam. FTX had a better governance score. Now, I'm not talking about environmental score. I'm not talking about social score. Okay. I'm talking about they had a better governance score than Exxon Mobil. So you're telling me that a guy who is running a fraudulent Ponzi scheme was providing better governance than the largest oil company that the world has ever seen. It's no. Nonsensical. It, no, it, no, that's completely insane. Right. And so once you realize that then you realize that 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 this is that
1: uh this is a game. Yet the corporations, Josh, are completely beholden to it at this point. I mean they they are doing things like if if you look at if you look at we'll use the the three that are that are the most in the news today. Bud Light. If you think about Bud Light the guy who drinks Bud Light. Bud Light is probably, what would you guess, a, a 80% male? More than that. Okay, 90% male. Um, a lot of blue-collar, working-class kind of guys. They, they they go to the factory or wherever, and they work all day. They get done with work. They're very loyal to the brand. They they come home, or they go to the bar, and they get a Bud Light. They look forward to that Bud Light. They're proud of that Bud Light. They wear Bud Light stuff, and on the days off, they, they, they'll... They'll, you know, they'll, they'll put a Bud Light koozie on their Bud Light. They've got a Bud Light hat. That's your people. And when you basically flip the middle finger at them, well, what do you expect? Target. People don't go to Target for political purposes. They go to Target for convenience. It's a department store, basically. Uh, now Chick-fil-A is getting criticized because they have this DEI thing that they're obsessed with. And people say, that's not why I like Chick-fil-A. People like Chick-fil-A because they've mastered the drive through line. And the food's consistent, and it's good, and people like Chick-fil-A. I don't understand why those kinds of companies look at their customer base and say, no, no we're going to completely thumb our nose at them. We're going to go for fringes. That makes no business sense. And so there's something that's motivating those decisions that – I I don't completely understand. I
2: think there's two things. Um, One, I think this gets back to class-based things. All the people in positions of power here, they're all coming from exactly the same places. They all went to the same schools. They all went, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. Same kind of story we told about the media. Okay. Um, So part of it is, is like they, they live in a bubble. They don't know that they live in a bubble because this is the bubble they've always lived in. Um. So that's part of it. I think part of it is just like tone deafness because li- they live in a bubble. The other part of it, I think, is actually that um, I I don't know how to say this in a really simple way, but like conservatives, Republicans, whatever you want to say, like um, for the most part, they, these are not people who protest and they're not people who um, boycott and and things like that. Um, and so I think part of what happens is that. They want to reach a bigger audience or they want to um, expand their audience. And they kind of think like, mm, this will make some of our customers mad. But, um, you know, like not the ones who will boycott us, right? And so maybe we can pick up some more business without, without losing business.
1: Yet Anheuser-Busch, this is Matthew Kolkin tweeted this today, Anheuser-Busch, uh, Inbev SA, which is the formal name of their corporation is down 5.2% since last Friday. That's in a week, erasing more than $4 billion in value due to the Bud Light boycott, which is not a protest, but it's a boycott, which is essentially a protest. Yeah. Do you think they even noticed that? Oh, they, they notice. Um, I think because it, it was very
2: clear, like target tried to get out in front of this, like they knew immediately, um, I, the way that Target responded made clear that companies saw what uh, happened with Bud Light and they knew that like if something like this happens to us, we have to be like ready. Um, we can't assume that it's going to blow over because I think that's what the Bud Light people kind of thought. It's like, eh, let just blow over and then, you know, um, and maybe, you know, we can diversify our our market or we can bring in more people to drink our beer or something or we can, you know, be more welcoming or, or something. Right. And, um, and so to them it was like something that they thought maybe had a potential benefit with probably like a very little cost. Like, you know, maybe sales would dip a little bit or something, but then people would forget about it. They move on. Target responded immediately. Like the second that that stuff showed up on social media, then there were reports that like target was, you know, having meetings about this and trying to figure out what to do. And they were moving things in certain stores and certain areas where they thought that it would be, you know, most, uh, where, where they would have like the most problems and things like that. So I do think that people are responding. I do think that they notice, I think that, but I think that the reason that they notice is that this time, uh, like was different because this was, uh, I mean, if you judge by social media, a lot of this was driven by a lot of like conservatives saying, um, you know, like enough is enough. You shouldn't go to target. And then people actually going, you know what? I'm not going to go to target or, you know what? I'm not going to buy Bud light. And, but normally that doesn't happen like that. Normally what happens is on the right is they get really mad about something. They tell you not to buy it. Maybe people don't buy it for a week. And then they're just like, you know, I got to live my life. You so know? is
1: this a sign that something has changed? Um, cause targets I, getting hit. I mean, their stock has just plummeted. Yeah. I think that this is,
2: um, think that the political environment has really shifted and i think that we're like um i mean this is one of the things that i'm really concerned about is that we're getting to a point where um you know you have one side that keeps saying you know what like um enough is enough and the other side saying nope like we're this is what we're doing and nobody seems willing to give an inch um and and normally Um, you know, when something like this happens, it kind of disappears for a while and then it pops up again sometime later or like, or one side just forgets about it. Usually the right forgets about it because the left has more activists than the the right. But, um, but I, I think this is actually, I think this is more of a political story than it is even necessarily about these companies. I think that there's, um, there seems to be, um, like I give you an example. There's there's an economist who wrote this paper like a, uh, a while like a, I don't know a couple decades ago. It's a famous paper in economics and but basically what it was about was like um, like why is it that if you read um, newspapers before a revolution the newspapers are like oh these moron revolutionaries are out in the streets and you know like and they just got completely dismissed them like these morons like they yeah. you know they can't even walk straight you know they, 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 they couldn't fire a weapon if they had to yeah. you know like blah 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 yeah. and then like the week after the revolution the newspapers like well this was inevitable the signs were there everybody knew this was coming <laughs> right and yeah. and so he was like how do we explain this and essentially what he explained it with is he has said that like this is a form of like pref- a preference falsification so you might hold a very strong opinion, um, but you think that it's a very minority opinion. And so you don't, you, don't, you don't ever say anything in public. If somebody asks you about it, you, you give them a non-answer, or you, or you just actually say that you believe the opposite thing that you believe, uh, or something like that, because you think that's what people want to hear. But so then those beliefs get reinforced because you might go out there asking people questions to try to figure out if they agree with you, and they're always like, oh, no, like, uh, that's, it's not a big deal. And then you're like, oh, I guess it's just me. But then all it takes is like for a group of people to kind of stand up and say, like, I'm against this. And then all of a sudden – a bunch of other people who have been against it, but just wouldn't say it publicly. All of a sudden they're like, Hey, there's lots of people like me. And then they do it. And so what his argument was is that's why the revolution seems unlikely, but then seems inevitable because in hindsight, you realize how many people were upset. We're just waiting for a leader yeah. to follow. Right. Yeah. And, um, and I think that like, because of social media, I think that plays a huge role here because now all of a sudden there are people um, like you have access to a lot more people than you used to have like it's not just the people you come into contact with on your on a daily basis it's like anybody that you follow on twitter or something right and so if you all of a sudden see a bunch of people and you're mad about something and they're all mad about something you're like oh it's not just me there are lots of people who are mad about this and that makes you more willing to do a bill like a boycott or or something like that because you realize that other people there's other people out there like you and so um but also, that suggests that this is a, that, that this is a much bigger issue than, than Bud Light, that this, is, this, is, this maybe reflects um, you know, deeper underlying political issues.
1: You know, I think for a long time, and you and I have talked about this before, I think for a long time, there was a push to, hey, just let people live and let live, right? And for the most part, people did. Um, gay rights, uh, gay marriage. All of those things, those are things that I think today people just, yeah. You know, you say, Hey, are you are you for gay marriage? Yeah, sure. Right? No one even thinks about it. But now it's gone from live and let live to no no, you've got to full throated endorse this. You've you've got to be, you've got to show your support in some visible, tangible way, or else, uh, We'll, we'll cancel you. You you don't get to just be neutral. You don't get to be like, yeah, yeah you guys do what you want to do. It's cool. It doesn't matter to me. or Whatever. It it has to be. No, no. You have to celebrate us. Um, we see some of that with this particular month that's just started, and I get a sense from people that, yeah, no, I don't know, man. I'm 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 not, I'm not willing to celebrate it. I'm not, I'm not going out there. It, it it goes against my value system. I'll give you an example: the Dodgers. We started with the Cubs. Maybe we'll finish with the Dodgers, bastards. Um, Clayton Kershaw, uh, Trevor Williams, feels like there's another Dodger, uh, and Blake Trehan. All are religious people, spiritual people, Christians. Um, One of them is Catholic, who said this is, this group, what they do, they mock the crucifixion of Christ, which is, Something that in my religion is sacred. You do anything but mock it. You so it's a, it's a symbol. It's the, the the cross. It's something that religious people wear on their hearts. You'll see baseball players wear the cross on the field. You know, touch the cross or whatever. They'll they'll pray before they pitch. They'll they'll say a prayer before a, the first at bat of a game or whatnot. And they're pushing back vocally. Now, they're getting criticized for pushing back vocally, but they don't seem to care. And as, one, as more do it, more start to say, hey, you know, I'm going to speak up as well. It feels like there's a pushback against the no. Not only do you have to let it happen, not only do you have to conform, you have to celebrate. And People say, I'm not going to do it. Did I express that in a way that makes sense? I think there's two, I think there's two
2: points here. Uh, one is uh, there there's another Machiavellian point here is that any side that's neutral will inevitably lose because if one side is neutral and the other side is not neutral, then the other side is just going to continue to push uh, like more and more in their direction. And the neutral people are going to be like, well, okay um, you know, do what you want to do as long as whatever, you know? And so um, I mean, ironically, like the people I heard this most from, um, you know, like 20 years ago were like left-wing people who were afraid um, of, of like evangelicals and stuff like that. Oh, they're going to push their religion on on you know the country or whatever. Um, because they were they seemed like an incredibly powerful group, like during the Bush administration, for example. And, um, and so you know the Machiavellian point is like you if you're neutral, you lose because if you if you um if you if your stance is neutrality, then the other person is just going to keep pushing you in their direction until you wake up one day and you're and you're in their direction. Mm-hmm. Um. The second point is, is that this gets back again to a critical issue about education. Uh, Freedom of speech does not mean um, that you are entitled to an audience. Uh, Like if you look at a college campus, college campuses have free speech areas on campus. And so the idea is, is like, yes, you have freedom of speech. But you can go exercise that freedom of speech over in this area, mm-hmm. and a lot of times they put it right in the middle of campus, so that you know you can, if if you if you know if there's an audience for this, or if you want an audience for this, you know you, you can potentially attract an audience. Now, I mean, some places will put you off in a corner or something like that, but but the point is, is that you can't just do it anywhere. Uh, like, so I have freedom of speech i can't just walk into like glenn boyce's office in the middle of the day and just start you know spouting off about something i will be removed from you don't get the, to go stand uh, up yeah. on
1: his desk and right. start preaching
2: right and right. like I'll, I'll be removed from the office and that's not a violation of freedom of speech they're just clearly you know it's like i mean they i mean they would literally just remove you from the office and then do go take you to the free speech area and go here you can do your thing right here yeah sure and um and i think that this is this is part of the issue is like um our educational system hasn't given people th- um the ability to actually argue about those things because a lot of people look at this and say look it's just freedom of speech it's freedom of expression that's a thing that um, you know that that exists like uh anywhere right like um like we we are a country that you know that's one of our values is that we let people express themselves and speak freely and and that sort of thing. Um, and that's true, but we don't, but you're not entitled to an audience and we don't have to give you access to an audience. So there's a difference between saying that this, uh, like there, there's a difference between saying like that this group, um, you know, uh, should be free to do their act or whatever it's called, right? Wherever they want to do it. And sure. uh, And there's a difference between saying that in general, um, you know, we shouldn't restrict that. Um, yeah, the freedom, plus, freedom of speech right.
1: means literally they can do that act right. no matter how lewd you and I might think it may be. Right, but freedom of speech they're, doesn't give them, not, uh, give they're them not the going to right be, to do it at the Dodgers game. They're not going to be right.
2: persecuted.
1: Yep. They're not going to be yeah, arrested yeah. and jailed for doing the act. right? But it doesn't give them the freedom it shouldn't give the dodgers the obligation to go hey we 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 have to give you a, an audience
2: yeah i mean uh i'm catholic i've seen the videos that people have posted uh, you know um i find it kind of offensive but at the same time look if that's what they want to do that that's fine but that doesn't mean that they should be able to do it at a Dodger game.
1: You wouldn't like if they came and did it in your classroom.
2: Well, exactly. That's the thing is that I wouldn't let them do it in my classroom. I wouldn't let them come to my house and do it. I wouldn't, you know. Um, so if you knew they were doing
1: it at your at your kid's school, your kid wouldn't go to that school, right? So like, so the, it's not it's not uh, right to subject the Dodgers players to that. The, yeah. the, these are their employees. They shouldn't be objected subjected but, to that.
2: But we don't. We've lost that. We've lost that sense of the argument. the The, the argument is that like. Um, well, you know, you either believe in freedom of speech and freedom of expression or you don't. And it's like, well, no, like I don't, I, I don't oppose their right to put on their show. They want to put on their show. that That's perfectly fine. People sure. enjoy the show and people pay to see the show, whatever go, go but not, it's not for me. And, um, and, so if
1: anything, you support their, their, their freedom of expression. Sure.
2: Yeah. yeah. And, but it's not for me and they should. And so, um, and you know, that freedom of expression doesn't mean that they should be able to do it anywhere that they want um, in the same way that any other form of free speech. You know, uh, I mean, like, I, look, I, I'm here doing this podcast. Like if I showed up one morning and like pushed chase out of the chair and started like, you know, talking, uh, you're going to be like, what, what the hell are you doing? Right. Like we're doing a show like you're not. And I'm like, oh, no, no, this is my freedom of speech. Right. No, no, no. Um, right. I, I, you know, sure. I can say all of those things. Anything that I was going to say, I can say but not on the show. That's not like, that's not the, you know, no one gave me permission to do that. And so, you know, there's a difference between those two
1: things. It's fascinating times. It really is. It's, I hear my kids talk about it. My oldest just got a job in marketing. I send her stuff and I wonder the world that they're walking into, like the, what used to just be common sense is now courage and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that means that the people who are courageous will ultimately you know ascend. Maybe that's what it means. I I I catch myself being glad that I'm 53 instead of 23 today. Even though I'd love to go back and be 23 and be young and all of those things, but it just feels like a feels like a really crazy time and I I I don't know who to blame for the fact that it's a crazy time, but at some point we'll either, like you said, we'll, you 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 can't be neutral. You have to pick a side. It's kind of like in sports. You hear coaches say it all the time. We don't stay stagnant. We either get better or worse. You know, we, we're either improving or we're regressing a period that we don't, the team that we are on Tuesday, we will be a different team on Wednesday. We won't be the same team. It might be by a, the, the slimmest of fractions, but, We will be either a slightly better team or a slightly worse team. And I think that's true in society. Yeah, this is a base like people
2: i have referenced Machiavelli twice. And I think like Machiavelli that people have this view of Machiavelli as like this, uh, like sort of like evil guy or like this sort of like, um, you know, uh, ideals and values don't matter. It's all just about like winning and losing and, and, um and, and things like that. And um but but this is but to kind of tie all this together, I mean, this is what it's actually like um if all you ever read was Machiavelli, like maybe it would you know, like maybe that's not a great thing. But that's why, you know, you want people to read Machiavelli and understand these ideas because empirically they seem correct. Um, And they've stood the test of time and people are still reading him, you know, like centuries after his death. But at the same time, we also have to teach uh, people, you know, about virtues, right? Like we want brave people, we want honorable people, we want respectful people. And this is a big thing is that people don't seem to realize that these virtues, these values are important. And that you can't have a free society without these values. Um, and and frankly, like everything um, every aspect of our society, every aspect of our education is about deconstructing and explaining everything and you know breaking everything down to you know these fundamental questions and explaining why this is true but if you think about bravery if you think about honor if you think about respect you can't like you, you can't just like explain why these are good like you can't explain why these are good um in fact it's very easy to explain why they're not good like i mean like um think about you know um somebody who goes and you know signs up for the military to go like defend the country. They're doing that because of a sense of honor, right? Like they believe that they are doing something of value and potentially of sacrifice um, for a greater good. Yeah. Now, if we try to deconstruct that, we can think about it and we can say, well, yeah, it makes sense that like we should have people like that, but does that person have to be me? Like, cause it would be better if I had like another guy went over there and risked his life because like, then like he's doing the risk, the risky thing. And like, I'm over here benefiting from it. But if everybody thinks that, then no one goes. And so instilling someone with honor, um, and you know, is, is a value and, and that's important. And also if you instill these values in people and, and like, so like if you're, if you think Machiavelli is evil, if you instill these values in people then they have these values and they can see Machiavelli and they can see that like, okay, there are these things that like are very like crude political points that like an evil person could really use to their advantage. But if people are virtuous and people like have learned these values, they won't be inclined to behave in that way. And so we, you know, we have to have this. And we, and we know this, like, I mean, this is something like our founding fathers talked about is it's not, it's not enough to just have like a constitution that has all these rules and checks and balances and all these things that like um, for society to function properly. You, you have all of these rules and as long as everybody's following the rules, it's great. Sure. Like this is, we live in the most prosperous uh, society in the history of the human race. And we live in a society that no one thought could survive. There are no republics that last a long time. There are no democracies that last a long time in history. They come and they go. And this republic has existed for centuries, is the richest country the world has ever seen. And, um, and that's an incredible testament to the ability... And uh, and uh and the the ideal of the system that we're in but at the same time that system requires that people follow those rules yeah and so if you like if somebody comes along and says i don't care about the constitution i'm the king now well I mean, <laughs> then what happens like oh well hold on uh you know like according to the constitution you can't do that oh uh, well okay <laughs> but he just did yeah. right yeah. and so you have to have um you, you know This is why it's important to have a a sort of well-rounded education. This is why it's important to talk about values. This is why it's important to talk about objective truth. Like this is why it's important to look at a sunset and say that's beautiful, and it's not my opinion that it's beautiful; it's objectively beautiful. And um, and to look at someone who's willing to risk their life for their country and say that person is honorable. Um, if you look it doesn't matter, you can look at Norse mythology, you can look at Greek mythology, you can look at Christianity, you can look at Judaism, Hinduism, and pick pick any uh, any religion, any myth, any whatever. they they all have common virtues in common. And you know that represents some kind of fundamental truth about humanity. And that across cultures, across religions, across beliefs, that people still share common values. That suggests that there's, that, that, you know, these are something greater than, you know, just words on paper and that these are, and that these serve some important social function. And if we lose that, then we'd lose everything.
1: Josh, I can't thank you enough for the time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. We will. Uh, this will be up in the Friday Oxford Exxon podcast, and uh, don't forget we'll be back on Monday with another week of Oxford Exxon podcast. We will uh, recap everything that's happened at uh, SEC spring meetings in Destin. We'll catch you up on the NBA finals, Stanley Cup finals. As much as people don't want to talk about it, we'll probably spend a little bit of time talking about the NCAA baseball tournament that starts tomorrow at 16 locations around the country. You might have heard Ole Miss is not in it, but we'll still talk about it. We'll talk about what's going on in recruiting, and uh, other things as well. All all of that on the Oxford Exxon podcast. Hope you have a great weekend. Thank you for making us a part of your week. Hope we have uh, brought you some entertainment over the course of the week, and we'll look forward to doing it again with you uh, next week. Thanks to everybody for being in uh, in the chat. Please hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. If you follow us on Spotify, hit the follow button. All of those are free. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, Until next time, for Josh Hendrickson, I'm Neil McCready. Talk to you again soon.
4: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium?